Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, everybody. Good morning. I'd ask everyone to turn where we left off, Romans 1, chapter 1, and then we'll pray. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in revealing your word to us. We thank you for using human language to reveal and make plain your divine truth. And we thank you for the gift and the ability that you are the one who opens our eyes to hear, to listen, and then to discern your truth and entreat you to send the Spirit to illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we, O oh Lord, may be receptive to hear your word today, and we may take it with us in our walk with you daily, every step of the way. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, when reviewing the audio from last week when we talked about the gospel, there's one point that I wanted to revisit and reemphasize. And this is a line verbatim from last week where we said, the gospel reveals to us that the righteousness of God can be appropriated by faith in Jesus Christ. So in plain English, that means without Christ, every human being is not okay with God. But now, through faith in Christ, a person's broken relationship with God is repaired, is restored, and now that relationship is made right because a man, because a woman, is now right with God. Now, how that happens, the mechanics of it is twofold. There's a negative side and a positive side. The negative side is that Jesus pays the penalty for sin on the cross via an atonement. But here's the thing. We're now in the New Testament where in Romans, the whole idea of making an atonement or something dying to pay the penalty for sin is not a new idea in the New Testament, is it? Because way back in the Old Testament, when we're now in the tabernacle and you had sacrifices, you had uh, animals being sacrificed, something dying to atone for sin. So the atonement part, or Jesus taking away our sins, isn't an idea that's new in the New Testament. But when we look back, the one thing from uh, the beginning in the Garden of Eden to the incarnation of Christ, the one thing that we had never seen thus far was the perfect righteousness of God. Because what biblical history tells us is that although God's people had the law, 
essentially everyone was a law breaker because no one could keep the law. And of course they couldn't because it was God's perfect law. So over and over and over and over and over and over again, we saw incomplete, imperfect human examples. And the best righteousness a man by themselves could produce was not holy, was not perfect, was not righteous. What's now fulfilled in Christ is through his life. He obeyed God's law perfectly and fully and therefore achieved a perfect righteousness. Now, what we don't have is a righteousness of man. We now have a righteousness of God, which could only be accomplished by Jesus's life. Now, here's the critical point I want to make. Our being saved is negative and it's positive, right? It's negative in that Jesus makes an atonement, pays the penalty for our sin, and redeems us from experiencing the wrath of God. But Jesus could not justify us if he came into the world and died as a baby. Why? Because he had to live an entire life of full, perfect righteousness fulfilling God's law, so that now, when he has 33 years of perfect obedience and he atones for us on the cross, when we believe in him, he not only takes away our sins, he imputes to us the gift of his perfect righteousness. And all of that to say, a zero can't make it to heaven. You can't just have your sins dealt with and then be okay with God. Your sins must be dealt with, and in addition to that, you have an imputation of righteousness or God's, Jesus's perfect obedience. This is why the fulfillment of the gospel message in the Old Testament is that the righteousness of God is now appropriated to us by faith. Clear? Good. Okay. So now, finally, after six weeks, we finished Romans 1.1. Now we're on to verse 2, which says, which he, which God promised, the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse number 2 tells us that the gospel or the good news was promised beforehand. So the gospel is good news, but it's not new news. The gospel isn't a new idea. The gospel is not something that God thought of on the fly after Jesus incarnated. The gospel was a plan. The gospel was a salvation blueprint that God had before the foundation of the world because Romans 1-2 tells us it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that's critically important for us to realize because back then and even now, anyone who has a new doctrine or anyone who has any new ideas immediately raises suspicions. If someone walked in this church right now and said, hey, everybody, I have a new doctrine. I have a new revelation from God. Immediately, red flags should go up because we have been preaching and teaching the same exact truth 
for the past 2,000 years, and that's the way it's supposed to be because it's God's truth. That way it's always real and it's always relevant. Hence, what Paul is telling us here in Romans 1-2, particularly when he's speaking to Jews who grew up on the scriptures, the Mosaic Law, is that the gospel isn't anything new. It's not some alien foreign savior coming out of left field. The gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, Jesus coming did not catch anybody by surprise. In fact, whenever Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees in the New Testament, a favorite response of his was, have you not read? He basically, in a very tactful form, was asking people, are you literate? Can you read? Because everything he was preaching and teaching was predicated on the scriptures in the Old Testament. So, the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand, what the prophets did in the Old Testament is they promised the gospel, and what Jesus now does when he arrives in the New Testament is that he fulfills that gospel promise. Because what does reality tell us? A promise is only as good as the one making the promise, and we know a promise is reliable when the one who makes the promise fulfills it or makes good on the promise. So God in the Old Testament promises the gospel, the Redeemer, the Savior, and in the New Testament, Christ arise now to fulfill it. Now, how far back in the Bible can we go to find the first gospel promise? Yes, Genesis. Where in Genesis? Genesis 3. Exactly, Genesis 3.15, which tells us what? We were still in the Garden of Eden. Our first parents hadn't left yet. So even back then, God had the gospel in mind and would therein order history to bring about the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, God says, he's speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, and the NASB has he with a capital H because it knows referring to Christ. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Which means all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God makes the first gospel promise that a redeemer, that a Messiah would come. Now, let's zoom out for a second and embrace the, the weight of this revelation. God makes the first gospel promise before Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, which now means from the Garden of Eden till the birth of Jesus Christ, God is now working in all of human history He's orchestrating everything to bring about the birth of his son. Pause for a moment and think about that. That God, from start to finish, weaves his fingers through the fabric of human reality and everything in human history is being led, is being guided, is being directed to bring about and set the stage for the birth of our Lord and Savior. This means when you think about the rise and fall of the Egyptians, 
of the Babylonians, of Alexander the Great and the Greeks, of the Persians, of the Romans. All of those empires existed. All of those empires rise and fell and played a role in God's story to set the stage for Jesus to come. But even more than that, that's just world history. That's just secular history. When we look now at all the Bible figures of past, all the promises, everything God did in their life was merely to set the stage for Jesus to come. When we look at Father Abraham, remember, Abraham, Abram did not find God. God found Abram. And when God makes a promise to Abram in Genesis 17 that he would have many, many descendants, more numerous than the stars in the sky, it's not because Abram was special. It's not because ultimately God's plan was to have a physical nation on earth. It was so that through Abram's seed, the Messiah would ultimately be born. When God allows Jacob to have 12 sons, by design, he allowed one of his sons to be called Judah, and by design, allowed Jacob to say, the scepter shall never leave Judah's hand. That wasn't so that Jacob could make a, a, a call on the fly for one of his sons. It was so that Jesus would be from the line of Judah, and the scepter would never depart from his hand. When God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the Davidic covenant, and he says, David, I will build you a house, a bait, a dynasty, which will be everlasting, ultimately, that didn't have anything to do with David, that had everything to do with Jesus, who would be a seed of David, who was to come. Everything from start to finish, points directly to Jesus. But even more than that, that's what happened in the past. We also have to realize, church, Jesus has two appearances, the first coming and the second coming. So you know what this Bible history tells us? That everything in reality now, everything in reality, everywhere on God's green earth, Everything is being orchestrated and designed so that all, all, each one and every of God's purposes is preparing humanity for the second coming of Jesus Christ. God has been in charge. God's been on the throne. God has been calling the shots from the very beginning. And all of reality is in his hands because the gospel was promised beforehand. Who can tell me what Jesus' favorite name for himself was? Son of man. Son of man. Good. And that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, where Daniel, in Babylon, the apocalyptic visionary, sees an, an eschatological vision of the Messiah who would come. This is what Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14 says. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, and to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, the Son of Man. His, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
In plain English, what's this verse saying? Daniel has a vision where he sees God the Father handing over the kingdom of everything to the Son of Man so that the entire world may now worship the Son of Man. Now, if you're a Jew, reading these scriptures, knowing that there is one God and God hands over everything to the Son of Man and the whole world now worships him, This now means God is not going to commit blasphemy. God is not going to commit heresy. The only way God could hand over the reins of authority to the Son of Man is if the Son of Man is also God. And when Jesus now refers to himself as the Son of Man, over and over and over again in the New Testament, he's drawing everyone's attention back to a promise that was made beforehand. Say all that to say when Paul says the gospel of God which was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, these promises are all over the Old Testament. Question? Yes. Uh, I always got the impression the Jews uh, concept of the Messiah was this very powerful man, not the Son of God. Well, because of their race will exalt them as a The Jewish conception of the Messiah, they, their favorite name for the Messiah was a son of David. So they never denied the fact that he would be a man, a person, and they always knew he would be a Judahite from the line of David. But their common conception that the Messiah would be a political ruler did not come from the scriptures It came from the legacy of the Jews being oppressed in the midst of a foreign empire. So what you basically began with is God's promise in the Old Testament of a Messiah king who would come. But they now took that and kind of wrapped it around their own experiences to say, we now want this Messiah to kick out the Romans, which is why on multiple occasions in the New Testament, the Jews tried to anoint Jesus king, and he said, my purpose is not earthly and political, it's spiritual and eternal. Just another example of people trying to make God the God they want him to be. So, not only was the gospel promised beforehand, and not only does the Old Testament in general point towards Christ in the New Testament, what we also find is that everything in the New Testament also points back to the Old So there's a continuity of truth where everything's pointing to the other and therefore God's message from start to finish, in essence, is is not new and it's total and complete. For example, in Christ's first sermon, what's the content of his sermon? He preaches from Isaiah 61 in the New Testament going back to the Old. In Peter's first sermon, Acts number 2, it's riddled with Old Testament references. And whenever Paul preaches, the text always tells us he's reasoning with people from the Scriptures. Bible trivia, what's the most quoted uh, chapter in the Old Testament that's quoted in the New? It's from the book of Psalms. Psalms. 
the most quoted psalm, the most quoted chapter in the New Testament is from Psalm 110, where David says, My Lord said to my Lord, to my right hand. Psalm 110 is messianic, meaning it's talking about Jesus. What's my point? The Bible is pointing to itself over and over and over again. There's no new message. It's the same message from start to finish. But even more than that, verse number two says, which God promised beforehand through his prophets. Now, when Paul here uses the word prophets, he's not referring specifically to those men who held the office of prophet, like Jeremiah, like Isaiah. He's referring generally to all those individuals who spoke on behalf of God, who not only recorded prophecy, but were also historians. And now those prophetic revelations were recorded in the pages of the Old Testament. But the most important thing Paul says here is that those prophets were his prophets. They were God's prophets. They weren't prophets of men. They weren't prophets of Caesar. They weren't prophets of Moses. They were God's prophets. And because they were his prophets, God's prophets, what they revealed is God's words. As 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And because all the prophetic voices of the Old Testament all point in a unified direction, one prophetic utterance validates the rest because they're all, in essence, saying the same thing, a gospel that was promised beforehand. Paul says, the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Key idea to understand. Scriptures comes from a Greek word, graphe, like autograph. That's where that, uh, that English word comes from. Graphe, which means writings. Crucial point to understand. In the Jewish world in which Paul lived, by the time we got to Jesus' time, people stopped paying attention to the graphe, the scriptures that were written down. And what they instead were listening to were the rabbinic sayings. Let me say that again. In Jesus' time, many Jews stopped paying attention to the scriptures because here's an insight, most people were illiterate. They stopped paying attention to the graphe, the written scriptures, and only listened to the rabbinical sayings. That's crucial to understand because what's written down in the graphe, the scriptures, our Old Testament, is God's words. But rabbinical sayings are words of men. And that now is the difference. Because if you're listening to what men say, not what God has written down, of course you're going to be confused and not see Jesus for who he really is. This is why Paul says the Holy Scriptures, not the 
unholy sayings. So, this is radically important to understand because in Jesus' day, many Jews ignored the scriptures and relied instead on rabbinical sayings. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says over and over and over again, like Matthew 5, 21, 27, and 33, he says, you may have heard, or he'll say, you may have heard it's been said. What he was, refer- what he was basically telling people in a tactful form is that what you've heard is wrong because what you've heard is what men have thought and spoken in and of themselves. But then Jesus will say, but I say to you, God therein speaks, And his words are now recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. So when we realize that the gospel was promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and that in essence all of the Old Testament points to Christ, what this tells us is that the key then to really understanding the Old Testament is to have a Christocentric lens, which means everything in the Old Testament isn't about stuff in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Now, I'm not one of these guys that thinks that, you know, every space, every comma, and every semicolon, you can find Christ there. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you look at the overall principles being communicated in stories, it's not about the story, it's pointing forward to Christ. Who's the Exodus really about? Jesus. God uses his power and he tells people to put the blood of the what? The lamb on the doorposts and lintel, the horizontal and vertical wooden beams of a door, and when the angel of God sees the blood of the lamb, it now passes over God's people and they're saved from judgment. When Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, who's that really about? Jesus. God was telling us, we're not going to provide our own sacrifice. He's going to provide the sacrifice for us. What's Mount Carmel actually about? It's about Jesus. Fire should have fell on the idolatrous, rebellious Israelites, but instead it falls upon the sacrifice that God commanded his prophet to prepare. What's the tabernacle really about? When God told Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness and gave specified instructions on how it was to be built, who's that really about? Jesus. Because the way you approach God, you walk in the door, you then first meet the laver where an animal is sacrificed, the blood is shed, After now the blood is shed, you now wash in the water. And after you are washed in the water, you now proceed into the tent and take steps closer to God. All of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. This is why, as St. Augustine once said, the New Testament is concealed in the Old and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. So even when we use the terms Old Testament, New Testament, that technically speaking isn't right. It's all one testament that was just sequentially revealed in an orderly process in time. And the final thing I'll say about the gospel being revealed beforehand is this. Even Jesus, when he was going to explain himself to people 
who were not in the know. He revealed who he is, and he spoke about himself, not by saying, hey, everybody, look at the empty tomb. Hey, everybody, look at the pierce marks I have in my wrists. Jesus revealed himself to people by preaching and teaching from the scriptures. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, when he's walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, he, the text says Jesus revealed everything about himself by explaining to them how Moses and the prophets were pointing to him all along. The gospel revealed beforehand by God in the Holy Scriptures by his prophets. Now, are there any questions? So I'm actually going to leave you with a question to bring back answers for next week. And the question is this. There aren't any wrong answers because the Bible doesn't um, give us a explicit, clear definition, but I want everyone to start thinking. And here's the question. We know, looking at Romans 1, 1, and 1, 2, that God promised the gospel in the Old Testament and then fulfilled it in the New. And here's the question I want you to ponder. Why did God choose to do it that way? What I'm asking is this. God first promises the gospel way back in Genesis 3.15. He says a seed of a woman is going to come, and that seed is going to crush the serpent. So why did God choose to do it that way? Why would, why would he make a promise four or 5,000 years earlier, then wait four millennia, and then decide to bring the Messiah then? And to give you a clue... To give you a hint as to why God chose to do it that way, you'll find the answer in the book of Galatians. Galatians isn't that long, so you can read through it and find your answer. And then next week we'll open by answering the question. I have a question. Yes. Um, you said that the Jews at the time were illiterate, but... Most. So then... In fact... Most of the world back then was illiterate. So then, how would they be educated in reading scriptures like generations? Excellent question. Excellent question. And this is how you know how God's message was polluted. Because if you were an illiterate Jew living in Judea back then, and your main concern was plowing the land and feeding your family, and you couldn't read. What would reality tell you? You would look at these guys like the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, like the scribes, and you would say, they look so religious. They look so impressive. They can read. They must know what God's word actually says. So if you now have someone who has all the outward trappings of education and religiosity, and they're telling you this guy Jesus is not the Messiah, this is what the scriptures actually say, you're now actually going to think what they're telling you is actually true. But the irony is back then, all of those people who were presumed to be the most learned and the closest to God were actually the farthest away. And what really has changed? 
Not much. People walk into a church, they see a big fancy church, they see a guy with a nice car, a nice suit, who orates and speaks very, very well. They're not reading their Bible, so they must think the Reverend Dr. So-and-so, who has 10 degrees, knows the Bible the best. So if he says, if you pray for um, a Bentley and a vacation house, you're going to get it, or if you give his ministry $10,000, he'll heal you, they say, that must be true. Because I don't read my Bible, he does. Here's my money. Or you don't even know, or you can go the other way. Like, you wouldn't think anything of it, because you, you don't even know what a Bible is. Exactly. And God thinks of everything, right? So we think we live in a modern world where we have new problems with the church, misunderstandings. It's all old news. It's been happening since Jesus arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago. Yes. In the synagogues, wasn't the Torah read out loud? Yes, so the first recorded instance of a worship service uh, uh, in antiquity was in Luke chapter 4. And we don't know precisely what happened, but in general, and here's the other thing too, most people, the Old Testament uh, was written in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew. Most people back then spoke Aramaic or Koine Greek, which is another barrier, which meant you would now have a rabbi or a uh, itinerant preacher who would read the original scrolls of the Old Testament in Hebrew, and people would say, what does this mean? Then he would, he would translate it in Aramaic and then explain to the people what the scriptures meant. But here's the other thing. We in this day and age, we have exposition, right? We'll get up there, we'll explain, like we're doing right now, this is what the scriptures actually mean. But back then, there was no sermon. It was basically reading the scriptures, and then people go home. So people could read about a weird historical narrative that happened hundreds of years ago, but not really get what it means or how it applies to their life. And they would be otherwise confused and in the dark. Okay, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the time and the opportunity to meditate on your word. And we also thank you for the 2,000 years before us of men who have faithfully exposited your word. So now we have the gift of your revealed word to us being so clear, being so applicable, and being so enriching to our everyday lives. Lord, you truly are the author of reality because our story right here and now was already written by you thousands and thousands of years ago. We yield before you, we love you, we trust you, and entreat you to nurture and grow our minds as we study Romans in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.